Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I really apologize for taking so long in getting this podcast out. But as you know, uh, last week I flew up to San Jose for the Psychedelic Science Conference. And, by the way, I had a fantastic time. But I came home on Saturday afternoon before the conference was over with a sore throat. And my voice was about to go, but uh, then on Sunday morning I woke with what turned out to be a nasty stomach virus that laid me low for most of the week. So uh, now I'm back in catch-up mode. I'm feeling great, but uh, that means I'm going to have to wait a week or so before uh, passing along my observations about the conference because uh, I want to first finish this current series of Terrence McKenna talks, and uh, then I'll give you all those details. However, before I do anything else, I want to pass along my love and best wishes to some of our fellow saloners who have sent in donations since I was last with you. And those wonderful supporters are... Brian H., Alec S., Yoshi N., a slaughter called Lightning Hawk, two of my new best friends whom I met at the conference, Shane G. and Jason F., and longtime major supporter, Vipal P., who uh, writes, Brother L., love. I'm sorry I haven't been able to provide the same level of support this past year as prior years, but I too have been impacted by the now infamous economic crisis. I wasn't worried, though, as the tribe always finds a way. Bless you. Well, Vipal, uh, it's the other way around. I send blessings to you, my friend, and uh, please consider yourself donated up for life. Uh, you've gone way above and beyond anything I could imagine from a fellow saloner. Also, I should mention that several other saloners came up to me at the conference and told me that they knew that we've been getting regular donations from others, and so they are now supporting some of the new podcasts that are coming online. In fact, uh, just the other day, I heard KMO on his Sea Realm podcast uh, thanking Max T for a very generous donation, and uh, that was just a week or so after Max did the same for us here in the salon, so uh, what a great guy, huh? So I want to thank all of our donors and supporters, as well as those who are also helping other podcasters get their message out. And I sure don't want to leave out the saloners who have bought a copy of my audio book, The Genesis Generation. Although I wouldn't say that the sales are anything like brisk, the uh, good news is that I'm able to know the names of everybody who purchased a copy, since uh, I'm only selling it through my own website. And believe me, I won't forget you either. Your support means an awful lot to me. Now, one other name I should mention that just occurred to me is that of uh, Erock X1, whose Guyan Botanicals website can be found through a link that you'll find on the left side of our psychedelicsalon.org blog. Now, Erock X1 has uh, been a longtime supporter and helper around here, and uh, even though he's in a bit of a financial bind himself, uh, nonetheless, he's printed and distributed many thousands of Psychedelic Salon bookmarks to uh, help us get the word out. So, if you are looking for any high-quality botanicals from a reputable source, you may want to take a look at all he has to offer. And uh, he is very careful in how he sources his products, by the way. Uh, this would be a really good guy to support if you need anything he's selling. Uh, as Red Green often said, we're all in this together, you know. And now we're about to share some more time together with the late, great Terrence McKenna. 
As you already know, today we're going to hear the next installment of a series of recordings sent to me by fellow saloner Brian P. And I should let you know that there were a few places where there was a very short skip in the tape. And uh, they were actually there. I didn't edit anything out, so uh, you're getting it just as it is. Now, we're going to pick up where we left off in this 1992 workshop as Terrence McKenna begins doing what he did best. And that is, uh, he would take a simple little question from somebody in the audience and then he'd answer it, without any notes of any kind, I should add. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, listen to this first question right now, and then count how many different topics Terrence covers, along with detailed references, I should add, before the next question is asked. And then you will begin to understand just what an incredible mind he had. And by the way, this isn't all lofty intellectual thinking we're about to hear, because uh, about an hour from now, we're going to hear Terrence tell the story of what he called one of the high-water weirdness events of my life. <laughs> yeah, you can just imagine what that must be, huh? So uh, let's get started. Somebody had a question? Yeah. Can you talk the fall of Eleusis. Well, as you all probably know, Eleusis was a cult site near Athens uh, on a plain. There's now a big lumber yard uh, there the last time I was there. But anyway, uh, it was this plain, a very fertile plain outside of ancient Athens, and uh, they celebrated the greatest of the Greek mysteries there. They celebrated, uh, it was a, a biennial, or I mean a twice yearly festival. In the spring, they would celebrate uh, uh, the lesser mystery. And this seemed to be a fairly local uh, get-together of some sort, and probably a planting festival. But every September, for 2,000 years, People from all over the Greco-Roman world would come for the festival at Eleusis. And the rule was, it, first of all, it was open to everyone. Men, women, free man, slave, everyone could attend. The rule was you could only attend once in your life. And so you had one shot at whatever this thing was and you were sworn to silence. And literally, everyone who was anyone went to Eleusis to experience the mysteries. I mean, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, Aeschylus, Euripides, um, everybody. Uh, People would make journeys of thousands of miles. It was the wellspring of Greek spirituality the problem is we can't we don't know with certainty what the excitement was all about I mean we know that there was an inner cult area called the Telesterion and that people would that something was drunk and that something was seen and in the 19th century they just went nuts on this subject I talk about it in my book and they finally all these uh, constipated Victorian classicists decided that the mystery of Eleusis must be a representation 
of uh, the female genitals illuminated at the height of this ceremony by a laser light show of some sort. And so, you know, it was just absurd. I mean, it was a, a complete distillation of the Victorian mind being projected. I mean, you'd like to believe that the roots of Western civilization are deeper than a peep show. But, hey, who knows? Uh, there was a very interesting incident in, it's called uh, the Scandal of 415, which is that in 415 BC, a wealthy Athenian noble named Alcibiades uh, was busted for the charge was possessing the Eleusinian mystery and distributing it to guests at dinner. Well, this seems to make it fairly clear that this was not a clay representation of anybody's genitals. Uh, this was some kind of a dope of some sort. So then the scholars whip out their knives and, and all kinds of theories have been brought forward. Uh, some of you may know the, the um, scholar Robert Graves discusses this in The White Goddess. And his theory, which I think deserves to be more, more looked at than it has, his theory was that um, these recipes, people drank something from a special cup called a kekekion, and uh, recipes supposedly exist for what they drank, and it's honey, barley, something else, and always water. And, and uh, uh, Graves argued that you don't, that water is not something that you list as an ingredient of something you drink. Obviously, it has water in it. So he said the inclusion of water in this list is in order that there can be an augum. Do you know what an augum is? I'm, you will when I tell you, because you've all seen them. An augum is when you make a list of things in such a way that the first letters spell out a word. You grok that? So the idea was that in Demotic Greek, the words for barley, honey, water, and this fourth ingredient that I can't remember, those four words can be arranged to spell out the word miko, which means mushroom. So Robert Graves was convinced that a psilocybin mushroom lay behind the Eleusinian mysteries. This is a pretty good, uh, this is uh, not entirely unreasonable. Now, a few years ago, there was a book called, written by uh, the great, mushroom enthusiast and discoverer Gordon Wasson and the chemist who discovered LSD, Albert Hoffman, and the classicist uh, Ruck, the three of them, and Jonathan Ott, I think, was also in there, wrote a book called uh, Persephone's Quest. Not Persephone's Quest, that's a different book. The Road to Eleusis. Good watch me, uh, <clears throat> The Road to Eleusis, and they put forth there a new theory 
which was that uh, on the plain of Eleusis they grew uh, barley and and uh, these people thought that there may have been a, a special strain of claviceps do you all know what claviceps is? do you all know what ergot is? ergot is a smut a smut is a disgusting disease, a fungal disease of grain. Have you ever been in a cornfield and seen an ear of corn that looks like it's covered with some black, slimy, horrible stuff that's flowing out of it and all over it? It's absolutely disgusting. Although God, in California, I don't know if this is hit here yet, but in California for the past year, the hippest thing that you can be served at pretentious art openings and stuff like that is corn smut which they spread on crackers and it's just horrible and it's really expensive I mean it's more expensive than caviar and it's just become a craze and I wouldn't get near it I mean it's not only disgusting to look at but the chemistry of it is so weird God alone I mean hives would be the least of your problems anyway so corn smut and there are rye smuts and there are wheat smuts but interestingly the the rye smut which is ergot is an, uh, an organism called claviceps paspali uh, produces LSD like alkaloids and uh the problem is that um, LSD, ergot-related alkaloids, are also uh, very tend to cause convulsions, or they can cause convulsions. If any of you suffer from migraine headaches, now there are a lot of different drugs for migraine. But up until just four or five years ago, the drug of choice for migraine was called ET. Ergonamine tartrate. Ergonamine tartrate, if you've got a kilo of it, you can settle down and make several million hits of LSD. Ergonamine tartrate is this very rigidly controlled underground substance that is produced legally only in certain sanctioned fields in northern Pakistan, and it's produced for the world market of migraine sufferers. And you get these little tiny blue pills. I, I have migraines. I used to take or got, but I don't, I've gotten it under control. But anyway, uh, it's the drug of choice for migraine because it constricts uh, the vessel, the blood arteries going into the head. Anyway, uh, Wasson and Hoffman argued that what they were doing at Eleusis is that they were brewing an ergot beer they were deliberately gathering barley that was infected with claviceps and they were uh, brewing an intoxicating beer and people were having a hallucinogenic experience well now this is a great area for uh, the able-bodied among us to do research because it should be possible to collect uh, claviceps and maybe even to go to Eleusis and collect claviceps there and culture it out and see if you could make an ergot beer that would actually get you hallucinogenically stoned. I'm not sure what's going on. I, 
uh, ergot is a dangerous substance. Uh, I remember an anecdote once. Many years ago, I knew these people who occasionally dealt illegal substances. And uh, one day, they they were moving some E.T. to somebody. And uh, they asked this guy there if he would take this ounce of E.T. and deliver it to this certain address. And they when they gave it to him, they said, Now, this is E.T., you know, so just leave it alone. And he got out in the car and he looked, he opened up the baggie and it was this white powder. And he said, you know, (laughs) these people can't fool me. So he honked up a little of it. And then he went on his appointed rounds and and the guy who was supposed to have the stuff delivered, um, he was sitting in his house and he heard this commotion on his front porch and opened the door to find this guy flopping around with his legs and feet in the air having uh, uh, convulsive seizures because of the E.T. he'd snorted up. It's just one more story about the dangers of white powder drugs, folks. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's important for the argument because... um, I don't see how they could have been serving several thousand people ergotized beer every September for 2,000 years and not had the Eleusinian Mysteries get a certain reputation for risk, you know, that people would have convulsions and conceivably even die of heart attacks. I mean, how could they get that many people loaded year in and year out and not get a bad rap on it? And then and I, t- I talked to Albert Hoffman about this, and he didn't seem to feel that it was such a problem. He said that what you could do is uh, float hot oil on the surface of this beer, and you could draw off the convulsive alkaloids would have an affinity for the hot oil, and then you could just skim this oil off and discard it, and you would leave the hallucinogenic material in the beer. Well, I haven't tried this. Uh, Like I say, it's for the able-bodied. But in any case, this was the last outpost in the West of of, uh, psychedelic mystery. And eventually, those enthusiastic Christian barbarians appeared on the scene. In this case, it was Alaric the Visigoth, a great guy to take to an art museum. And, uh, you know, they, they smashed it all to pieces. Alaric the Visigoth was kick-ass. People don't realize that these barbarian invasions of the late Roman Empire, the Vandals took over a huge swath of North Africa. They didn't just stop at the bottom of the boot of Italy or on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. These guys just kept rolling. And huge parts of Africa were under the control of Visigoths and and, uh, Vandals. North Africa, Carthaginian coast of the Mediterranean. And that killed, that was the end of the Illicinian mysteries. Uh, But it shows how late this mystical psychedelic impulse uh, persisted in Western civilization. Uh, See, the thing that gave the Greeks their genius 
was that it was a mingling of a, of a northern mentality coming out of Thracia and places like that, meeting a t- very old, mystical, uh, feminist culture that had its roots 10,000 years deep in Saharan Africa via Egypt and uh, Chattalhya Yuk in Turkey. Uh, because it was said, even in classical times, what is celebrated in secret at Eleusis is celebrated publicly at Knossos uh, in, in Mycenae. You see the Mycen- uh, in, in Minoan Crete, you see, Minoan civilization was an archaic civilization. It preserved the goddess worship, the opium use, uh, all of these archaic styles were preserved in, in Minoan Crete for millennia after the rule on the coast of Asia Minor was kingship, bronze-tipped spears, city building, and that whole sweat socks mentality that built up there. Uh, And what finished those folks off was around 950 AD, uh, Mycenaean pirates eventually laid siege to these Minoan cities and after centuries of slowly drifting deeper and deeper into opiated decadence, Minoan Crete fell. But all of the mysteries and the mysticism and the orgiastic rites and all of these archaic forms were then imported into Greece as mystery religions, as cult practices. Uh, one of the puzzles of Minoan religion is that they worshipped these things or they had a religious relationship to these things called uh, aniconic pillars, they're called. What they are are mushrooms, as far as I can tell. They built shrines, they worshipped columns, but these columns were slightly flared on the top. If any of you are interested in it, well, something that should be said. See, we have a distorted view of, of how culture developed and what classicism really meant because for the past, throughout the 18th and 19th century, European scholarship spent a huge amount of time it distorting and erasing the debt of Greek civilization to Africa. They, they basically screwed with the record because they just couldn't bring themselves to believe that all this wonderful architecture and proportion and mathematics that it was little brown people who were responsible for this and and if you're interested in this this book there's a book by Burnell called Black Athena that is a really radical book have any of you read it? It had quite a... It was very controversial a couple of years ago. Great book. Yeah. Black Athena by Burnell. And it shows how how Western culture misrepresented the debt of classicism to Africa. I mean, they could tolerate the idea of Egypt as long as you always made sure, you know, that these people were white as the driven snow. Well, it's a bunch of malarkey. I mean, it was a, it was a thoroughgoing black culture. And 
everything was derivative of it right up until, I don't know, the Byzantine Empire or something. I mean, Plato freely acknowledged his debt to this stuff. It was just that it was unswallowable to late European culture. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they did a cover thing on it. I, I uh, didn't read it. Time, a few months ago. Yeah, what was it called? Our, Our African Roots or something. Yeah. And there are, it's not, it's no uh, shock and jive. I mean, we think 19th century scholarship was so careful and so wonderful, and what it really was was an old boys' club. I mean, they were fast and loose with this stuff. You know, I think when it's all sorted out, it all happened in Africa. I mean, language, religion, symbolic activity, theater, all of this stuff was in place in Africa from, say, 20,000 B.C. up until around 9,000 B.C. in the Saharan grasslands, which then, because of drying, uh, these people were forced into the Nile Valley and uh, into a different cultural style. But uh, the African cradle of civilization, I don't even regard that as a theory. Anybody who doesn't believe that is going to have to do some fast talking. And, you know, there's been this recent effort to say that uh, the Australian Aborigines broke off very, very early. But, um, you know, it's pretty specious, I think. You probably all know the theory of Eve and the fact that you can trace the maternal line through the episome of the mitochondria. So you can actually, it's actually now believed that every human being on earth is descended from one woman. And this woman lived in Africa less than 200,000 years ago. You know, it's really amazing. All other human lines have been quenched somewhere along the line. She was, her progeny were phenomenally successful. And uh, uh, this, this is, I would say now, the strongest theory about this now is the Eve theory. When it was first propounded, it was thought to be screwball, but that's because the physical anthropologists didn't really understand how the molecular geneticists achieved this conclusion. Once it was explained to everybody, it's pretty clear, you know, that, that we are all descended from one single female human being, not that there weren't other human beings that she was embedded in as a society, but none of those lines of descent reach to the present. Uh, yeah. When you said the civilization Well, it was decadent in the sense that it went into a kind of a deep freeze. The level of change in the last thousand years of Minoan civilization, the dating of ceramic and stuff like that is almost impossible because they were completely static. They were unchanging for a very, very long time in that late phase. And that's when these opium tallies were rising like crazy. Yeah. Is that the law? What's the law? 
The Hermetica. They were beginning to uh, invent, in fact, the Casa Bones are considered to be the inventors of modern philology. Oh, is it? Interesting. I wonder if it was a soap job. Uh, yeah, modern philology. And the way you do it is by interlocking textual reference and studying locution styles. And it, it was a tremendous shock to the Renaissance when they realized that what they thought was 5,000 years old was less than a 1,000, you know, or was about a 1,000 years old. And that's what really discredited that whole worldview, which is in a way silly because who cares how old it is? The question is, how much sense does it make? But the Renaissance was so strongly imbued with this uh, belief that the ancient things were the better, that if something was shown to be not as old as previously thought, then it usually went on the discard pile. I think we lost... Who were they? It was Cosimo de' Medici and that family and the Borgias. But you know, this family, there were, I think, 11 popes who bore the name Borgia in a hundred year period. So these people were very, very well connected. They were very wealthy. They had disposable income which was something new in the world. And, and they invented a whole bunch of things which God knows this city lives or dies by. I mean, like connoisseurship, patron of, patronage of the arts, and uh, uh, secular research projects. I mean, they were funding da Vinci's work on catapults and flying machines at the same time that they were keeping all these painters paid and uh, in mistresses and so forth. They were uh, organizing archaeological digs. People couldn't believe this stuff. I mean, we, we have assimilated all this, but they had forgotten the classical world. And then, and they lived, you know, they lived in places like Rome and Naples and Venice, but they had never dug. And they'd just been quarrying the Colosseum and stuff like that. Well, then when they began bringing this stuff out of the ground, and then the Platonic corpus and all this, they just went ape for classicism. So ape that... You know, now we're this year celebrating the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, which in a sense can be seen as the cherry on the, on the top of the Renaissance mental explosion. Uh, we are still living in a classical world. We still react against classicism. The buildings we live in, the clothing we wear... Our notion of how gentlemen behave, our attitudes toward women largely, uh, our attitudes towards private wealth, uh, all of this is classicism. And it had been dead 1,200 years 
before these Italians latched onto it and dusted it off and set it up. And, you know, there had the modernism in its broadest context, whatever that means, is the first movement to come along to be able to in any way challenge classicism. The, the subsets of class, the, the, the art movements and literary movements that preceded modernism were simply aspects of classicism. Romanticism, uh, mannerism, um, the Baroque, all of these are, are like facets of the classical object. It's only in modernism. And what modernism represents, in my humble opinion, is a kind of return to the archaic. Modernism deconstructs the clarity of the Western eye. If you have to date where modernism begins, it begins with Impressionism, which takes the clarity of the Western eye and begins to dissolve it, you know. And the linear, you know, the columns and lines, that's how narrative was until James Joyce and, uh, and Henry James and, and people like that showed that narrative could be broken up. Uh, modernism is a form of primitivism, strangely enough. Uh, the people who created modernism, people like Marcel Duchamp and Picasso and the Surrealists, they were tremendously influenced, in the case of Picasso, by African art, masks and sculpture, stuff that had never been seen in Paris in 1905 through 15, and everybody was tremendously excited by it. So modernism is part of this much larger phenomenon which I call the archaic revival, you know, the discovery of the unconscious through Freud and Jung, the deconstruction of the image, first the image seen through Impressionism, and then the image imagined is deconstructed through um, Surrealism and Dada, and then finally, you know, the concentration on the materials of art which you get in abstract expressionism, where it is about paint. It's no longer about paint in the service of, of, of uh, the visual pictorialism. It just, and then all the postmodern stuff, which is, of course, just sort of running naked, screaming through the street kind of aesthetic. Is, yeah. <laughs> No one ever knows Well, this thing, the, only this one instance I mentioned, the scandal of 415 and this guy Alcibiades, and he was fined. He was fined and given a warning. Question, yeah. Yeah, the origin. Good question. Uh, see, what happened? I mean, it's very interesting. Some of you who are interested in Heidegger may know a wonderful essay by uh, Hans Jonas called The Gnostic Temperament. And what he's saying in there is that the... the uh, 
attitude, the psychology of the late Roman Empire, let's say Rome from A.D. 150 to 400 or so, was strikingly what we would call modern. That that a, a profound kind of exhaustion entered into the Roman psychology uh, in that late phase. They became, you know, the de- a good definition of decadence is its sophistication without feeling. You know, and it's Camille Paglia's definition, by the way. Uh, and and the Roman Empire made the emperor a god. Well, imagine the cynicism that would pervade our society if you were under state order to light candles to George Bush. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're free to think of the man as a jackass, and it's not heresy. I mean, it may be bad taste, but, or, but it isn't heresy. And uh, the Roman Empire expanded so rapidly and took in so many different kinds of people. I mean, there were, you know, the, the Jews at the end of the Mediterranean, the Parthian Empire had been partially incorporated into the Roman Empire, uh, Egyptian mystery religions and uh, African folk religion, barbarian, Celtic, Ideals were being imported in, and it just it became uh, uh, and the state religion, the religion of the emperor as God, was uh, it was fairly tolerant. Uh, you had to burn a candle to Caesar, but you could also burn a candle to Asarte and Thoth and Hermes and all these other people. What got the Christians in trouble was they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, give Caesar his due. Even though it says to do this, you know, they kept claiming uh, that they were had some kind of political agenda. They kept expecting the return of a political figure. The Romans hated that because they didn't. They saw it as a political force. Well, in that situation, then after you see, you have to talk about early Christianity to get this stuff in context. Uh, people don't understand how shaped our knowledge of the origins of Christianity are with good reason because a religion wants you to believe that it's all very cut and dried. There are real mysteries surrounding the birth of Christianity. Let me just run through it a little bit. Um, We all know, or most of us know, if you're not completely secular, uh, the Christmas story. And it begins, and Caesar Augustus decreed that a census should be taken of all the world. And each was going to his village to register. Do you all know this story? And so this explains why a pregnant Galilean woman, nine months pregnant, is 110 miles away from her home village in Jerusalem. We're told that they are obeying the dictates of Caesar Augustus to participate in the census of the empire. And we're told that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea at this time. There was no census ordered by Caesar Augustus. No record exists 
of this anywhere. And if this had happened, it would have been an enormous bureaucratic task involving hundreds of clerks and the coordination of data from all parts of the empire. It would have been a shtick of some sort. And there's nothing, nothing, only this reference in the whole story of Christ. Well, you know, weird. Okay, so then you move on. The assumption is that Christ was born in 6 BC uh, under the conjunct conjunctio maximus of Jupiter and Saturn. That places, the, if you believe the Gospels that he was killed at age 33, that means the crucifixion must have been in 27. Well, uh, there is no reference to Christ outside the Gospels until AD 71. What was happening between 27 and 71? It's damn near 50 years. And the whole thing falls silent. And then uh, what we get in 71 in, um, I think, the Roman, uh, it's, I guess it's in Suetonius. Suetonius, who was a Roman historian and contemporary, he says in a long rap about something else, he says, Jews have recently come to Rome and uh, caused public disturbances at the behest of their leader, Crispus. This is as close as we get. We don't even know if Crispus is Christ. We just accept that this must be so because Suetonius is telling us that Jews of a religious type have come to Rome and caused this agitation. Uh, the, it, some people have even wanted to that... Uh, that Christianity was invented in the late 60s and that, the, that there never was a person named Christ, that zealots who were preparing the uprising of 69 against the Roman Empire uh, created a mythical figure of a generation earlier and uh, uh, used this mythical figure as a symbol of their rebellion. It would be sort of as if we were to get into Joe Hill. You all know who Joe Hill is? The engine of socialism is a slipping back. Come on, all you workers, shovel sand on the track. Joe Hill was a martyr to, to social reform in this country. I believe he was shot by a firing squad in Utah in 1913. Well, we could reach back to Joe Hill and make him the founder of our movement and say what a great guy he was and collect stories about his life and, and it, we could use it to center ourselves and build a kind of social reform movement in the name of Joe Hill. Yeah. The sacred mushroom and the cross. He basically says something very much like this. Uh, I don't know about that. I just think it's very peculiar that we know so little about Christ when he had such a major role to play. I mean, take a guy like Manai. Manai, the founder of Manism, who was uh, born uh, in, uh, I think, around 320. Uh, God, we know everything about Manai. We have his tax returns. 
I kid you not. We have the guy's tax returns, and we know what he looked like, we know who his friends were, we know he had marital problems. A real person, you know? And yet his religion was stomped into oblivion. So there's something funny about all this. And of course, Christ is no ordinary person. Christ is the third person of the Trinity, God incarnate. This is a claim, this was an idea that had been around for a few hundred years. You you all have heard of Dionysius, who most people tend to connect to Bacchus, the, the drunken late Roman god of wine. But the early Dionysius is a much, much weirder figure. The early Dionysius... Uh, is uh, an androgyne, always in the company of women, a god of ecstatic frenzy. And what the enemies of the Dionysian religion always claimed was, first of all, women were the the major followers of Dionysius, and they would uh, intoxicate themselves in some way, and then holding hands down through the countryside and uh, and uh, rend their clothing and just carry on outrageously. And what the enemies of the Dionysian religion claimed was that they became so frenzied that these women, who were called Manaeids, uh, ate their own children. This was the lie spread about the Dionysian religion. Well, the story of the birth of Dionysius is very interesting because his father was Zeus, the hidden higher all-father, analogous to God the Father in Christianity, but his mother was Simila. And in some versions, Simila is a mortal woman, the daughter of King Cadmus of Thebes, but in other versions, she's herself some kind of a goddess. Anyway, she was one of these many affairs that Zeus had. He was always impregnating women and and bearing children. And uh, in the eighth month of her pregnancy, she was struck by lightning and killed. And she was very dear to Zeus. And when he came upon her dead, he immediately performed a cesarean operation and he cut open his thigh and he put the child into his own thigh and laced up the wound and the child was born out of the wound six weeks later. Now, this may be grotesque and peculiar, but notice that what we have here is something close to a virgin birth. It's, uh, it's born of the father is what we have. And Dionysius was then called the twice-born God because he was born once by Caesarean section from his mother and born again six weeks later from the thigh of the father. And it's thought that this Dionysian impulse in the hands of these uh, mystical Jews became then the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and the whole notion of an immaculately conceived child. Christ is a type of Isaias. I mean, it's heresy to say so, but comparative religionists have been saying this for centuries. Uh, Dionysius was a religion of, of orgy 
an ecstasy typical of this period in Greece. Another religious system that was sort of complementing the Hermetica and developing alongside it was um, Gnosticism. And, you know, I said a few minutes ago that the psychology of the late West Roman Empire was very modern. Gnosticism is a very, very modern impulse. It may not at first appear so because ancient Gnosticism is freighted with angels, demons, what we would call superstition. But if you strip away all that Baroque stuff, you come to a philosophy very similar to the philosophy that many of us have accepted really without thinking. We just call it modern attitudes. But the idea in Gnosticism is that you're on your own. You know? There there ain't no free lunch. If a God if God did make the universe, he disappeared shortly afterwards and has no interest in you, your fate, your fears, your hope. Uh, we don't belong. Gnostics were profoundly phobic of the world. And uh, they uh, were either very ascetic cults or they were very uh, libertine like cults springing from the same idea which was that they did not belong in this universe they were from a different place and their whole concern was to escape they are the ones who decided that the earth is an iron prison Uh, they didn't like to have children because they felt that to have a child is to trap light in matter the only, in many Gnostic sects, the only forms of sexual activity that they approved of were forms that were guaranteed to not lead to conception. So oral sex, anal sex, whatever. But never sex which could lead to conception because that would trap the light. And that was an abomination. Needless to say, these sects died out in a hurry uh, because they were self-limiting. There were all kinds of religious impulses, yeah. Yes, he he said that these zealots were using Amanita Muscaria as a sacrament and that Christ was a a symbol of the mushroom so that they could refer to the mushroom without directly referring to it so that only the believers would know. Uh, I, John Allegro's case is interesting but not entirely persuasive. Um, there needs to be more work in this area. There is something going on in the ancient Middle East about mushrooms. It's hard to reconstruct, first of all, because the climate itself has changed so much that there are no mushrooms. But uh, the, the evidence is pretty strong and getting stronger that, uh, that there was um, mushroom use. I reproduced in my book a picture of a mushroom object, and I was hoping I had another one here, but I guess I left it back at the apartment. Uh, 
Man, uh, Mandianism, which is an old, old cult in that part of the world, forbids the use of mushrooms, which is puzzling since there are none. You know, and they don't forbid much, but they go way out of their way to for- forbid mushrooms. Uh, out of all this turmoil, I mean, it was very much like modern times. The whole Hellenistic world was awash in religious speculation. On every street corner, they were casting horoscopes and prescribing diets. And, you know, there were the, the temple prostitutes. So, so there was a whole uh, hedonic element uh, in sexuality. Orgy was a style in some religious organizations. And uh, out of all of this religious foment, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Chaldean oracularism, uh, Jewish syncretism, so forth and so on, uh, and Christianity was in there. But it was just one in the crowd, but with sharpened elbows and a sense of organization, it was able to slowly worm its way into a position of dominance. The, the real Christians, whatever that means, probably were stamped out under the name of pagans. You see, what happened was the message of Christianity was that the end of the world was imminent. This is the other thing that they were into that has also reemerged in modern times, is the eminence of the end of the world. And um, so for about 180 years after Christ, or 150 years, everybody just was like so stoned out on this rap that no organ, no serious organization got done. And they just waited for the end of the world in little communities practicing voluntary poverty and, you know, doing their thing. And then it began to slowly dawn on people that it had been a long time since the Messiah's promise. And it was kind of stretching out a little. And so then certain mentalities in that situation said, uh, you know, this you know, return of the Messiah is all very well, but I think we should get some real estate under our control and uh, begin a vigorous building program and maybe... Uh, found some schools and stuff like that. So these religions began to become, to turn away from their end-of-the-world ecstatic millenarianism and to see themselves as organizing for the long haul. And um, it was in this atmosphere that the hermetic books were produced and written down. The chief magical ritual of hermeticism is the invocation, the ability to call stellar demons down into statues. And then these statues prophesy. And uh, this is why Christianity is, uh, it takes the Jewish aversion to idol worship and just raises it to a whole new level of intensity because they didn't they were freaked out by this animating of statues with stellar demons thing that the hermeticists were into yeah 
Well, this is a good question, you know. I mean, when you're reading a 1,500-year-old account of a magical invocation, uh, if we are to believe them, what happened was by singing certain songs, burning certain incense, and performing these rituals uh, at certain times that were astrologically correct, they could cause these things called decans, which are, are zodiacal demons of some sort. There are three decans to each zodiacal sign. See, modern astrology has completely, largely forgotten this. I mean, there are people who do decanic astrology, but you have to pay through the nose because, of course, this is a lost and dying art. Uh, but they would somehow be able to draw these decans down into the statue, and then they could uh, extract knowledge from the statue. And, uh, you know, th this, is, this would lay the basis for these sympathetic magics, which were then later developed in the Renaissance. It's quite powerful, actually. This is why this book I recommended is so interesting, the one on spiritual and demonic magic by Walker, because it, uh, it shows you how by you living a certain life, you know, these Renaissance princes were incredibly wealthy. So you have a suite of apartments which overlook, uh, uh, you know, the Plaza San Marco in Venice, and certain colors are prescribed that the walls be painted. You only wear certain kinds of robes made of certain materials. You perform your magical invocations at certain times of day, burning certain incenses. And they were big on fresh air and light. It isn't the dark image of magic that we get of, you know, the stirring cauldron and the bat-faced familiar and all that. No, it's all about open air, light, wind blowing through, flowing silk robes. It, they were angelic magicians, is what they were. And they were evoking these things through the use of sigils, which are magical symbols. And then there became stress on magical alphabets. Enochian is one of these magical alphabets, or languages, rather. John D. Remember, I mentioned the whole 10-year episode with the showstone. Well, one of the subjects which these entities that Dee and Kelly were dealing with returned to again and again and again were um, the, the uh, Enochian, this language, which they said was the true language that Abraham used to communicate with the angels. And it has a special alphabet, uh, an alien alphabet. And there has even been published an Enochian dictionary of some four or 5,000 words. Uh, there was a very bizarre, this is just a footnote, but a very bizarre episode in the mid-1950s. There was a, a woman who was a kind of clairvoyant, and uh, she was in contact with flying saucers. I mean, now everybody and their dog is in contact with flying saucers. But at that time, it was fairly rare. Rare enough that she became uh, 
she became an object of interest to the CIA. And at one point, she was in the CIA building in Langley, Virginia, and they were interviewing her. And uh, and uh, she said, well, there's a, there's a flying saucer right outside the window. And, and these guys rushed to the window and looked, and there was some kind of thing in the sky. And she said, it's... It's giving me a message for you, for this colonel. <laughs> and, and, and the message was, Afa, 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 A-F-F-A. So he wrote this down. Well, then I, 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 don't, I didn't read this. I looked it up. I had a hunch. Afa is the Enochian word for nothingness. Just more more weirdness uh, angelic languages you know why do these DMT creatures uh, why are they so concerned with language not only language but alphabets I had a very weird in fact you know one of the high water weirdness events of my life was when I was young I used to uh, I was I wanted the DMT flash to last longer so I used to smoke it uh, at the height of LSD trips. And one uh, Christmas vacation, this rooming house that I managed in Berkeley had been, everybody had gone home for Christmas, I thought. And so I decided I would take some LSD and smoke DMT. And, um, and so I took the LSD and then I smoked the DMT. It was just nuts. I mean, it's nuts enough. But this was like turbocharged nuts. It went on and on and on. And finally, I uh, there was a woman who I rented a room to upstairs uh, named uh, Rosemary, who was supposed to be in Minnesota. And she was a, a actress and very projective and did everything with great flair. And she apparently came back early from Christmas vacation. So she hit the front steps running of this house and, and used her key to let herself into the front door and came right around to my door and started beating on my door. Well, I am by nature a very paranoid person. I mean... I can be up the Rio Yaguas Yasu in the middle of the Amazon basin and if I'm out in the rainforest smoking a joint and a stick is broken anywhere near me, I immediately hide the dope in a, and just, you know, I'm very paranoid. So this woman lets herself in and comes and beats with her clenched fist on, on my bedroom door. Well, I like underwent a, a coronary thrombosis or something and I was in the elf space and they were screeching and chattering and showing me all this stuff. And when she did this, I like I I flew off the bed. I jumped like I jumped two feet in the air and, and landed on my feet and it was it was as though and don't try this at home folks it it, it was as though the uh, this sudden flash of adrenaline and this sudden movement that I made broke up the ordinary division between 
the trip and norm, normality or something. Anyway, I pulled the trip with me into the room. I was now standing in the room, eyes open, but the, the elf creatures had come with me. And everything had just been like jacked up to some immense level of intensity. And there were these rotating geometric things in the room uh, hanging in the air. And it was like moving in this jerky motion. This thing was going click, click, click. And it was faceted. And every time it would make this large metallic click, these plastic triangle-shaped, brightly colored chits or something, like little pieces of, of floor tile or something, would fly across the room. And each one of them had a letter on it in an alien language, sort of like Hebrew or Sanskrit. And it was just, there were several of these machines, and these things were ricocheting off the walls, and I had an elf hanging off each hand, and I was turning around, and I was just saying, holy shit, you know, I've pulled, I'm, 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 and I, and then she's still beating on the door, you know? So I stagger over to the door, fling it back, and look at her and say something like, Way do quam quam And then she realized at that point what my problem was and, uh, and retreated. But I've, I've never forgotten... It's the one time that it, that they went literary on me, and not only did I see them, not only did I hear them, but I they were printing on the air the message as well. Very curious. I mean, we don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I don't know, the first, the first few times I smoked DMT, I had almost no ability to say anything about it at all. I remember the first time I did it, I've never actually seen it hit anybody quite as hard as it hit me the first time. I came out of it and I said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I don't believe it. it I don't believe it. And I said this about 200 times because I just, my life, I was blown out of the water. I'd spent years getting my act together and becoming a Marxist and a this and a that and had all this stuff all figured out, you know. And it just left me absolutely intellectually naked. It was that everything you know is wrong experience except that it was from the toes, you know. I mean, everything I knew was wrong. I've never forgotten it. I mean, it is the most, uh, I don't know, it's like hitting the reset button on your whole cosmogonic myth. I mean, it, you just, uh, it's the convincer. You know, you occasionally meet people who say, <laughs> you people who take drugs, listen, you think I believe that this is anything more than you just hyping yourself up on this? You say, listen, you got ten minutes to put into exploring that point of view. Check this out, because it's, uh, it's confounding. I mean, people sometimes ask me, is it dangerous? 
It is if you fear death by astonishment. <laughs> you know? Astonishment is something we rarely experience as the genuine article. We fake it. Say, oh, you've really surprised me. But, hey, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, it can really get wrathy. Yeah. You mentioned this ancient cult that forbade the use of the mushroom. What were their beliefs? Why did they? Uh, Mandayanism? Well, Mandayanism is a very old religion. Um, it arose around Jerusalem in the, a couple of centuries before Christ. It was a baptismal cult. And uh, I'm, I'm really into the Mandayans, actually. They were the oldest continuous Western religion in the world uh, uh, with a Gnostic intent. And they started, and they were probably, they started out as Jews, but they were persecuted. They claimed John the Baptist as one of their own. And he was a member of some kind of baptismal cult because we know he baptized Christ. But they, they were driven out of uh, the area around Jerusalem and then for centuries they were in Lebanon and then they slowly made their way across Persia. And... Uh, they ended up in the swamps of Iraq and Iran. I know someone from there who calls himself a Baptist. Do you? From is he from Basra? <laughs> is he from Basra, that city in the south? It's a very huh? Yeah, there are about a million of them. Why? How do you know? I heard about that footage. People in London told me that they had seen it. I, I, underground, he told me that because they're discriminated against, you don't go around advertising that you are one of these, you know, people don't like them. And oh, no, they don't like them. Well, Mandayans are very, very interesting. They, uh... uh they have yes, they have their own written language. Although in 1847, there was a cholera epidemic that wiped out 90% of the priesthood and only priests were allowed to learn to read and write this language. I have some uh, facsimile manuscripts from the Vatican Library. I sort of think that we all should become Mandaeans, that of all the religions I've ever looked at and studied, it seems to me the most psychedelic, the most sort of ethically correct, I mean, they are in there, and it would be a great religion to practice on a world scale because they're into caring for the land. They're river nuts. They love rivers, and they build their, they build a cult hut called a mandai, and they always divert a little ditch through it, and then they do their their ritual baptisms and stuff like that there. But their folk tales and their uh, religious beliefs are very interesting. It's like a religion of biology. The highest god in Mandayanism is called Hibble Zaiwa, and Hibble Zaiwa is always referred to as they. So it's that they are in charge, and it's uh, beautiful scriptural stuff. Uh, 
they're very much like Orthodox Jews, only more so in that if you're a, a, a religious Mandayan, your life is ruled by all kinds of uh, things, sort of like the rules of kosher. The most difficult rule that these people are asked to keep in their own lives is that if you're really a devout Mandayan, you are considered polluted if your eye falls on an unbeliever. And an unbeliever is a non-Mandayan. So you can imagine uh, how difficult it is when you're down to four or five hundred people to make sure that's the only people you ever see. The only profession that a Mandayan man can uh, follow and not require ritual decontamination every day is silversmithing. So if you ever go to Baghdad, (laughs) not likely too soon, but if you ever go to Baghdad or Basra or Kirkuk, there are communities of these people and you find them by going to the silver markets and then through discreet inquiry, uh, you, you can find them. Well, in if in folklore, uh, if folklorists, folkloric anthropologists have developed all these rules. If a religion makes something taboo, you can usually bet that that means they were into it at some point. Because when a religion makes something taboo it means that there has been a reformist upheaval inside the religion. This is probably how Soma was lost to the ancient Hindus, you know. Uh, uh, It's how Zoroaster was called the great reformer. And he was the great reformer because he suppressed a lot of indigenous shamanic cults uh, and some people think that he actually attempted to suppress Hauma, and Hauma is the Avestan uh, counterpart of Soma. If any of you are interested in all this, this book by Flattery and Schwartz called, uh, uh, what is it called? Hauma and Harmaline in Iranian Religion. It's from the University of California Press. And they make a very strong case that Soma couldn't, was not mushrooms, that it was Pagaman Harmala. And it's really a great, it's a really interesting book. I mean, I learned things that I didn't know. For instance, uh, in the pre-Zoroastrian phase of Iranian religion, drugs were not only used to access the spiritual world, but they actually said there was no other way to do it, which is sort of my position. So it was nice to know that these pre-Zoroastrian Iranian light religions, uh, they they were into what they called the Menog, M-E-N-O-G, the Menog, and it's another dimension. And you can only attain knowledge of it through the use of drugs. But the Manang existence is where the dead people are. And what their religion was about was you get to know your own soul through using drugs and you approach the... It's like, a, it's like visiting somebody in stir. You go 
and your soul comes and meets you, comes through the monog existence and meets you at the membrane. And the idea is that during life, you must learn to recognize your soul because after death, if you can't pick it out of the soul swarm, then you will be somehow uh, incompleted in the after-death world. Yeah. To attain death by astonishment. <laughs> well, DMT raises the possibility of death by astonishment. I was talking to somebody about it last night, saying, you know, when you take DMT, the question is not, <laughs> will I be all right? The question is, have I lived through it or not? <laughs> because you can't tell whether you've lived through it. DMT is this very short-acting hallucinogen that you smoke, but it's a neurotransmitter. It occurs in all human beings on the natch, and it occurs in a various plants and animals. In terms of nature, it's the commonest of all hallucinogens. In terms of impact, it's the strongest of all hallucinogens. I mean, it's a completely reality-obliterating experience, and it comes on so quickly that you don't grok it like a drug. I mean, we all know what a drug is. You know, you feel this, you feel that. It gets stronger, it makes you rest. Finally, it overwhelms you. This isn't like that. This is like that... You know, you and your friends are somewhere and there's talk about this drug and the pipe gets filled and this and that. And then you're about to smoke this drug or maybe you just smoked it. But anyway, a 747 crashes into your apartment building at three times the speed of sound and interrupts whatever you were doing. And sometimes people come out of it saying, you know, what happened? What happened for crying out loud? Say, nothing happened. You just did it. I mean, say, you mean that's it? Say, yeah, that, that's what it does. Because it is not, it's more like it happens so quickly that we interpret it as an event coming from the outside rather than a, a, a chemical compound diffusing through your body because it completely replaces reality not with the contents of your unconscious or your unfulfilled dream wishes or any of that but with an, another dimension a space filled with entities busy about their many tasks although they notice you and come flocking over with a piercing screech and begin to uh, they like to treat with you they play with you they're not entirely friendly. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's the kind of feeling I used to have in India when I would go to make these hash buys in these Indian markets and these guys would say, you know, welcome, welcome, you're my friend. I am not like all the others. <laughs> and what it was was you know we were there to do business and so it was fine and everything usually went smoothly but this was no environment into which to let your guard down or anything like that you've had your hand what does it do what does DMT do 
in our brain as a neurotransmitter. We don't know. Nobody knows what it's doing there. And as long as the government makes it impossible for science to pursue rational questions or rational answers to these kinds of questions, it's not likely we'll ever find out. The best guess so far is that it mediates attention. That, for instance, if there were to be a noise over here or movement, and I turn and I that that's a little spike of DMT makes that possible. It's where you suddenly narrow your awareness and project it deeply into a small confined area. This was the best guess of the people who did work on it a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, there are a number of physioactive uh, tryptamines. Uh, DMT is not if it's made right, not a cardioactive tryptamine. Sometimes when you smoke it, your heart races, but you can't tell whether that's sloppy synthesis or that you're scared. You know? It's made from tryptophan, which is an amino acid, one of the eight essential amino acids, and it's an easy conversion out of tryptophan. Well, it can come from a plant, but if you were to ask a chemist to make it for you, he'd ask you to get him a, a few hundred grams of tryptophan. Can you, and uh, do you distinguish between the kinds of entities that you encounter on DMT as against the kind that you found on mushrooms? Well, on mushrooms, you hear a voice. You don't rarely, at least in my experience, do you see who's talking. But on DMT, you, you all, all barriers are transcended in the first 30 seconds. I mean, you hear it, you see it, and sometimes you feel it, you know. These little entities, these self-dribbling basketballs, these things that I call the tykes, they jump into your chest. They jump into your chest, and then they jump out again. I don't know why they do that. In the Amazon, uh, among the tribes that use DMT derived from plants, they say, they call these spirit things, they call them hikuli. And they say that you're supposed to not, that they will jump into your chest, and then you're supposed to have a technique to keep them from getting out. And the number of these things that you trap inside your body cavity means indicates how powerful a shaman you are. Your magic is done through the hikulis that are trapped uh, inside of you. So you really don't have to see mushrooms? You do, but it's fleeting. It's like, you know, it's, it's different. With DMT, it is more real than this experience of sitting in this room is real. I mean, it is confounding. It's very hard on DMT to tell yourself, this is a drug. I mean, good Lord, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like you just tunneled through an energy barrier into the beta sub X dimension, which is all the time all around us, but somehow you just became virtual and moved across the energy barrier, and there you are. You know, and the other thing about DMT that's weird is it does not affect your mind. In other words, you don't feel 
gaga with ecstasy. You don't feel relaxed. You feel exactly the way you felt before you did it. It's that the world has just been swapped out. And, and that's strange. I, I sort of like that, that it doesn't lay a glove on the observing cognitive processes. Instead, it just does something in the visual cortex that causes the, the world to be replaced by a three, four, five-dimensional, highly colored, moving environment filled with screaming elf demons. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. More like 50 milligrams. We need to go to lunch. This is the last clip. Um, I heard somewhere that concomitant use of MAO inhibitors increases the length of time that um, the DMP experience will last. Have you heard that? And if so, in what form are the MAO inhibitors taken? Okay, the question is that can you extend the life of a DMT flash if you predose yourself with MAO inhibitors? The answer is probably this is really a don't try this at home folks maneuver unless you really know your MAO inhibitors. Uh, there are MAO inhibitors synthetics uh, that will inhibit every molecule of MAO in your body for up to six weeks after a single exposure. This you don't need. Uh, uh, an excellent MAO inhibitor for these purposes would be harmine or harmaline, which is, uh, which is uh, reversible in four to six hours. So if you take harmine and pre-dose it, but before you go extending your DMT trip with an MAO inhibitor, you better have just a, a, an ordinary, old-fashioned, regular DMT trip and decide whether you really want to spend more time in that place. Because, see, the hook is, especially for smart-ass straight types, is that you say, look, it only lasts ten minutes for crying out loud. You want to have all these opinions on this subject, but you're not willing to invest 10 minutes. So most people, certainly I, the first, I said, I had taken LSD and all, I thought, <laughs> 10 minutes, uh, bring it on. We'll go out and have a beer afterwards. Well, it turns out that in a holographic universe, 10 minutes is indistinguishable from 50,000 years under the proper conditions. So we'll meet back here at 2.30. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, welcome back. Now, uh, rather than uh, carry on with my usual closing remarks... Today I'm going to cut myself off and save them for a little bit later in order to get the rest of this current McKenna series online. We've got uh, four tapes left to listen to. Three of them are about 45 minutes long, but the last one's only about five minutes long. So I'm going to get these next two podcasts out as soon as I can and uh, save all of my commentary for the final program when the uh, talk itself won't be so long. And my objective is to have all of that done by the end of next week. Of course, uh, <laughs> you've heard stories like that from me before, haven't you? So uh, please note that it's not a promise, only a plan. 
Anyway, I'll uh, close for now by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which uh, is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.